Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. And I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Knopf. Hey, hey, how's it going? We have an excellent show lined up. I will tell the listeners right up top, it's just us hosts today. We're going to go through three different news stories. We've got a humdinger of a ending offbeat segment, so lots to look forward to. Just the holy trinity today, as Alex referred to us last week. I did say that. I'm still kind of road testing that one, Haley, to be honest. (laughs) Sorry to bring it back up. I don't know if that's going to stick. But yeah, I (laughs) I did in fact say that. Before we get to the the meat of the show, I did want to uh, just highlight uh, an experience I had last week. We do like to share movie, TV, book recommendations here in this space from time to time. I last week, in fact, hours after we we recorded last week's show, I saw Killers of the Flower Moon. Have, have either of you seen the film yet? I haven't, and I will not I yet. will admit I haven't read the book either. And now I'm feeling really bad about that. Like I I should have gotten on it by now. Well, the book is wonderful, and so is the film, in fact. And I I won't get into the the, the whole thing here. Incidentally, the book was written by David Grand. This will be the second David Grand story I talk about uh, on the podcast because a sure. couple of months ago I mentioned the wager. But anyway, I uh, I bring it up because the last third of Killers of the Flower Moon, which if you don't know, is about uh, a series of mass murders in the 1920s of uh, Osage tribal members by uh, white people who were trying to get their oil money. Very deeply sad story, but very well reported. Um, But anyway, the last sort of third of it is sort of a a little quasi courtroom drama. And uh, I, I'm eager to uh, see what you all think about that. There's a few kind of somewhat subtle points to that, that kind of paint those proceedings as like a kangaroo court in a lot of ways and are um, kind of emblematic of how corrupt and uh, fetid the entire legal system was down there in Oklahoma, like about 100 years ago. So we always talk about reviving Pro Se Movie Club and add this to the list of ones to think about, because that seems like it would be very fun to discuss as a group. Yeah, that was it. And that that part of the movie and the book as well is like very different. It's a very sharp, you know, right turn from what is like these these great planes of like post, you know, turn of the century West and things like that. So check it out if you, I mean, you should check it out anyway, because it's a, uh, an amazing story. But um, uh, I did want to offer an update before we get to the news. Uh, three weeks ago, we had Rachel Scharf on the show, who is one of our New York court reporters, and she is covering the Sam Bankman Freed criminal fraud trial in the wake of the collapse of the FTX crypto exchange. One of the things that Rachel uh, told us as uh, at the end of that segment, something she'd be watching for, was whether Bankman-Fried would be testifying on his own behalf, which if you follow any criminal trial proceedings, you know that is rare and often uh, not advisable if you talk to a lot of uh, criminal defense attorneys. But as it turns out, this just came out yesterday, SPF is going to take the stand. And actually, Rachel turned around a very quick piece talking to some white-collar criminal experts about the various factors that went into that decision. So I thought that was an interesting development I wanted to update people on and definitely check out Rachel's piece on that if you're uh, if you're at all intrigued. Yeah, people are watching that one so closely, and that will be really something to see when, when he takes the stand. So exciting news there. I can't say that I'm surprised, you know, given <laughs> yes. his track record. But yeah, we'll be looking forward to that for sure. Yeah, a lot of people said that to Rachel, too, that, you know, what we know of the guy's personal 
hubris or whatever you want to call it might have played into that. But see how that goes. But on to the news. I think uh, uh, we can turn the page here. I wanted to start with what's really a a bevy of lawsuits, uh, an all-out sort of legal blitz from 41 U.S. states and the District of Columbia against Meta, the, the Facebook parent company, on Tuesday, basically alleging that the tech giant is actively harming children by building addictive features into Facebook and Instagram and other products without proper safeguards. This is, to date, probably the largest mobilization of government prosecutors on this issue to date, but it focuses on a question that is still somewhat murky and unresolved in the nation's courts. It's just kind of another log on the fire. These lawsuits drew attention both for the their sheer scope and also the breadth of bipartisan cooperation. You heard me say we've got over 40 states on board here. Very tough to get uh, that many state AGs to agree on anything in this day and age. But I think that is very telling about how seriously the states are beginning to take this issue. I don't think it'll surprise anyone to hear about the addictive nature of social media. I think that's pretty well documented in the social science at this point. But I am interested in exactly how that plays into the lawsuits. Like, who's suing exactly and and what are they saying is the ultimate harm here? Yeah, we'll get that sorted out because there are so many uh, parties at play here. The main, like, sort of flagship case that you probably read the most about if you saw a headline about this is uh, from 33 states. It was filed in California Federal Court, the Northern District, um, and it was led, of course, by the California AG's office. The Florida Attorney General also filed a complaint in its own federal court, and then also the District of Columbia and seven other states filed state-level claims in their own jurisdictions. Now, the precise claims and allegations in these lawsuits vary a little bit, but the unifying theme is a central accusation that Meta has violated several state and federal privacy and child protection laws by designing its business models to maximize young users' engagement and also deploying very like manipulative features that negatively impact uh, children's mental and physical health. And at the heart of all these claims are, among other things, uh, algorithms that are designed to recommend content that keeps users on the platform longer and encourage what the complaint describes as compulsive use. They also train their sites on these very aggressively deployed alerts that are meant to drive users back to the platform, even when they are able to log off. And also there is uh, quite a lengthy dissertation on those like visual filter features that the AGs say can sort of promote body dysmorphia among young children, which is a very serious issue that you read about a lot in these spaces. And the lawsuits allege that, you know, while refining these features and marketing them to children and teens, Meta deceptively claimed that the features are not manipulative and that its platforms are perfectly safe with no drawbacks, despite, as you hinted to, Amber, reports, studies, academic musings that have detailed the detrimental impact that social media use can have on children. Well, I've got to say, when these headlines first started flying, I was like, am I having deja vu? I thought that they, the social media companies had already been sued over this. Is that accurate? Are there other suits flying around? This is America. There's no limit to how many times you can be sued <laughs> for something. You know that. But True. yes, you are, you are correct. Um, on this 
specific issue, there's been lots of legal action before. I wanted to just give a little backdrop there. If anything, all these state AGs are, are a little bit late to the game, and that's, but that's only because these suits came after a nearly two-year investigation into the particulars of these features and business models that we just talked about. And they were investigating you know, all across the social media industry, not just Meta, even though Meta is a huge giant in that space. But in the intervening time, while they were investigating, parents and other users have taken matters into their own hands. They, there have been a bunch of class actions that have been filed against a number of companies that make similar claims that sites are exploiting and harming children. The bulk of those claims have now been kind of roped into multi-district litigation in California. Um, now, as a policy matter, the question of social media companies' threat to children is kind of all over the map because Congress has introduced legislation to kind of make social media, for lack of a better word, safer for kids or less addictive or like have clearer rules about what you can and can't have on your platform. But that's mostly stalled, like a lot of things in Congress. Then that has forced a lot of states to take matters into their own hands. Um, but that's also been uneven. California and Arkansas recently beefed up their child safety laws to address this threat. And both have uh, ha at least temporarily had them shut down in federal court or, or in state court, rather, by judges that say those laws um, may imperil the company's First Amendment rights. So when the state AG's investigations like, got underway, Meta went on the offensive and tried to be you know, somewhat proactive and kind of wanted to head this off a little bit by making a lot of changes to its platforms, including giving parents tools to track their children's activity more closely. They built in warnings that urged teens to take a break from social media if they had been on for a very long time and beefing up privacy settings, things like that. But that clearly hasn't been enough to keep the wolves at bay here because we got, you know, several dozen state AGs going full speed ahead. So I know this is early days. This is just suits at this point. But what are we expecting next? Where are we going from here? Well, Meta, as you might expect, it said it was disappointed with the AG's decision to sue. And they had signaled that they had obviously been in dialogue, which should not be a surprise since they were being investigated. I'm sure they cooperated to some extent or another. They said they were disappointed that a lawsuit was filed instead of, quote, working productively with companies across the industry to create clear, age-appropriate standards for the many apps teens use. Now, as I mentioned before, there is an MDL underway in California dealing with um, social media adolescent addiction claims. And in fact, the plaintiff's attorneys who are spearheading that case commended the states for taking their own legal action this week. Uh, there is a chance that the AG suit could be folded into the MDL, but that could be a little bit thorny as the governments are now, are for now, focusing only on Meta, while the MDL includes claims against TikTok, Google, other social media entities. Obviously, when a suit is filed of this size and magnitude, the thought immediately goes to, like, it's very unlikely just, you know, from the history of cases like this that you go all the way to a trial and a huge damages claim. It could happen. Like I say, it just got filed two days ago, but a lot of the focus will be on, will shift to like, okay, if they want to settle, how much money are we talking about here? Or could there be regulatory changes that emerge out of stuff like this? That's like you say, uh, the, the lawsuit is all of two days old at this point, but those are some of the outcomes that people are 
are teasing at now, but uh, many roads to travel before we get there, and we will uh, keep you up to date as we do here. For our second story today, I want to pivot us to the opposite end of the spectrum, something that's um, really wrapping up a settlement that's even a few years old at this point. I am going to give a disclaimer to this story. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say some things here that may come across really very much in the vein of, well, back in my day. <laughs> so just be aware that that's the, the tenor I'm bringing to this story. Old lady podcast host yells at cloud. Is that what you're saying? hundred percent. That <laughs> okay. is what is about to happen in this story. So right, regardless great. of that, here we go. The Law School Admission Council announced late last week that it's removing the analytical reasoning portion of the LSAT. That's the section that most people just call the logic games. They're taking it out following a 2019 settlement with blind prospective law students. In its place, the test will have a second logical reasoning section. This change takes effect in August 2024. She's on her law school uh, admission stuff again, Haley. Back on that grind. I think we should just let her cook on this one. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think so, too. I feel like we should, uh, you know, Al neither Alex nor I has attended law school. So you, you're the one with real skin in the game here. What's the settlement underlying this? Thank you for the runway, guys. I will take point <laughs> on all complaints related to law school admissions and law school itself. Okay, so the case that led to the settlement was brought by a blind prospective law student, a couple of them, who said the organization via the test materials themselves and the test prep materials it provides, strongly advises test takers to use visual diagramming to solve these complex logic games. And that makes up, at the time they brought the suit, about a fourth of the multiple choice portion of the LSAT. According to the suit, blind test takers who are deprived of visual drawings to solve those questions, instead they basically have to rely on their working memory to keep all of these interactive elements of the problems in their head. So you can see how that kind of disadvantage would be pretty significant here. While the Law School Admission Council never actually admitted wrongdoing, they did promise to work with blind prospective students to come up with an alternative. And that sort of brings us to where we are now. I don't know if we still do this, but I definitely remember when I, we'll get back to the story here, but since we're just kind of playing jazz, I definitely remember that when I applied for this job at Law 360, we ganked some like logic questions yes. off, off, we did. off we an took LSAT at some point. You, you took them out? We took we, them out. We took them oh, out. Thank okay. Dropped them years so ago. We were, we were ahead of the game here. I mean, this is great. Uh, we're way ahead of the Good LSAT. Good for Law 360. I did not enjoy <laughs> that section of the uh, yeah, that was a test. <laughs> much older version of our test to uh, get a job here. So we took that out. And yeah. We stepped um, back. We listened. We learned. Uh, <laughs> we did the work. Now, okay. Anyway, back to the story. But yes, we will never pass up an, an, an opportunity to pat ourselves on the back. But <laughs> you mentioned that this settlement came in 2019, which is quite a long time ago. What took them so long to kind of, did it just take so long to like find an alternative or what was kind of the delay in like actually doing the thing that the settlement said they were going to do, which is eliminating that section of the test? Yeah. So by the time this elimination actually occurs next year, it'll be five years after they pledged to make the test more fair for people with disabilities. The delay arose largely because there was an effort to study the best new format for the LSAT. Oh if boy. you did, in fact, take out that logic game section. Um, the council conducted a large-scale field test in this intervening time. The test offered various types of questions to test takers in an unscored section of the regular LSAT. 
So there was just a portion that wasn't scored and it was meant for purposes of figuring out how to make these changes. In the end, the council determined that the best way forward would be to add back a second logical reasoning section, which actually used to be on the test anyway, but it had been dropped in 2020 to shorten the exam for its move online. Now, I want to point something out here. I do want to say I'm all for making things easier, so I do not oppose this, but (laughs) does this change make the exam a lot easier? Which again, for the record, I support. Look, a lot of people did hate those logic games, but in short, no, the test is still really hard, you guys. It's still hard. The test makers were pretty quick to point out that though the logic games are being retired, the LSAT will continue to assess prospective law students on their skills in things like analytical and deductive reasoning through the other sections, and they said the change shouldn't impact overall scores. To that end, they provided data showing that over 200,000 test takers who underwent the original version of the LSAT that included one section of analytical reasoning, two sections of logical reasoning, and one section of reading comprehension produced a median score of 151. When the analytical reasoning section scores were excluded, those test takers' results showed median scores of, drumroll please, 151. Hey! No change. No change. So... You know those academics were, 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 were high-fiving each other when, that, when the computers <laughs> spit that one out. They're like, we did it. We well, maximized it. They, <laughs> they must have been happy because then they could make this change that does, in fact, make the test more fair. But also, for all the people that did have to take those logic games, none of that mattered. It never mattered. <laughs> they did not matter at all. Yeah. Um, so a spokesperson for the testing council, Mark Murray, said this, quote, Some people loved the logic games and other people disliked them with equal passion. So I think that the overall test is going to be just as rigorous, just as demanding, and just as strong a predictor of law school success as it always has been. (laughs) This guy is talking about logic games like they're like a like a divisive author who died or something. It's like, hey, you know. Some people love what this thing did, and some people really hated it. But you got to respect it. Did people love thing, Alex? You're making fun of this a little, as you should, rightfully so. But I will say, this is one of the rare stories we have on Pro Se where the divide between just legal journalists and people that had to endure the LSAT and law school really shows up because I have a lot of strong feelings about this. I, I, I'm More sure. than I even expected to have, to the point that when we wrote about this, I shared the article with one of my best friends to be like, look at this. So yeah, I strong feelings here. Speak on it. On a personal note, of course, I think the change is good for the overall test. It brings more equity. I'm all for it. But in law school, once I was already there, I did teach Kaplan LSAT classes. And during that period of my life, I became a real whiz at the logic games. Mm. So I do mourn for the general loss of one of my lesser known skill sets that (laughs) is now entirely meaningless. I know a ton of people hated that section of the LSAT. It was very difficult, but I'm going to go busy myself right now with writing a eulogy to this kind of logic puzzle because there's part of me that misses the rigor of those existing and being tested. This is another another piece of the Amber McKinney origin story falls into place here. I, I, <laughs> I miss I'm, the logic game. <laughs> I know. It, well, this piece really paints me as a future like villain in a superhero movie or something yeah, that I'm like— right you know, clasping my hands and wishing for a logic game. That's not a good look. I'm aware (laughs) of that. But 
it does go to show you, people that had to take this test really do have strong feelings about it one way or the other. And it's going to be a whole new day that, that there's going to be all these test takers that never had to do logic games. Are you looking for CLE credits? Learn by doing with PLI's Interactive Learning Center, where you can try out new concepts and test your knowledge using real-world scenarios. PLI's immersive, on-demand programs, such as Strategic Listening for Lawyers, Diversity and Inclusion in the Legal Profession, Addressing Implicit Bias, and Informal Legal Writing, let you consider complex questions and practice new skills. You'll be prepared to handle real-world challenges as they arise. Launch a new course now on PLI's mobile app, or head to pli.edu slash ILC360. Google has to pay an executive $1.2 million for discriminating against her because of her gender and then retaliating against her after she raised her concerns. A New York federal jury recently returned this verdict against Google after a six-day trial. And it's an interesting verdict because the jury found that Google treated her less well than her male colleagues. But at the same time, it said the executive did not prove that Google broke the law by paying her less than the men. This is a really interesting one for me, Haley. You know, I love talking about labor and employment law, but there's some really, um, it sounds almost contradictory when you explain it in the way that you just did. So I really want to dig into it. Let's start with Who's the executive and what exactly did she allege? This case was filed by Ulku Rowe, a technician director on Google Cloud's financial services team. Rowe said that when she was hired in 2017, she was brought on at a lower pay level than male colleagues who she considered to be equally or less qualified than her. These men were hired alongside her and she and them did all the same things but she was not a member of the old boys network, so she was not paid the same. That's obviously according to her suit. And after Roe brought this up, she said she was illegally denied a vice president level promotion that should have been hers. She also said that in general, her career at Google has stalled in the midst of this litigation. So she's still there. She filed suit in 2019. So she's been working while litigating for, for a while now. One thing I do want to note is we are indeed dealing with tech executives. So Roe is still paid generously, to say the least. Uh, During the trial, she said she made upward of $900,000 last year. So she's doing okay. But she says she would have made hundreds of thousands of dollars more had she been brought on at that higher level that her male colleagues were brought on at. Yeah, it's an interesting prism to look at a labor issue when you're dealing with. I deal with this a lot on the um, on the sports desk, of course. Whenever there's any kind of contract dispute, and the employees are paid quite handsomely compared to the median uh, citizen, but that doesn't make the legal questions any less important or less interesting, especially when the decision was a little bit, I won't say fractured, but like threads a specific needle. So we know what her allegations are, as you've laid them out. What was Google's sort of primary defense here? Yeah, the way I was looking at it is uh, well-paid women can be discriminated against too. Um, That's good, yes. (laughs) Thank you for saying it more eloquently than I did, yeah. No, no. 
But so, yeah, so Google argued that the pay level that she was assigned was commensurate with her experience. She came to Google with great communication skills and some great regulatory experience. That was thanks to her time as chief technology officer of credit risk systems for J.P. Morgan Chase. But Google said that her background was lacking in engineering. And meanwhile, her male colleagues came to Google with a lot of those technical skills, and that's because they came from places like Spotify and General Electric and Intel. Her boss actually uh, took the stand and said she consistently received exceeds expectations performance ratings. But her boss also said that she hasn't made significant engineering contributions to her team. This unlocked a new nightmare for me, which is any boss of mine taking a stand and publicly discussing my performance before performance a jury. Performance evaluation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is such a good point. That's everyone's. Let's all, we're all going to have that nightmare tonight. Instead of getting up and like doing a presentation for a class when you're not prepared, that's probably the new stress dream that your boss yep. talks about you in open court. And um, under oath, no less. Not even yeah, like, yeah. can't even like be nice to you, like to be polite or anything. <laughs> They're under oath. They have to tell the truth. Okay, so after this testimony, what did the jury find here? Yeah, like I said, the jury agreed that Google discriminated against her because of her gender and then retaliated against her. But the jury said that Google did not break the law by paying her less. And the damages allocation here was a bit unusual. Roe was awarded $150,000 for emotional distress, plus another $1 million in punitive damages, But at the same time, the jury refused to award her any back pay because of its finding on Google's pay practices here. Now, Roe's attorney still considered this a big win. He said the verdict sends, quote, a resounding message that discrimination and retaliation will not be tolerated in the workplace. And meanwhile, Google um, very predictably focused on the jury's finding regarding her pay. A company spokesperson said that Google is pleased the jury found that Ms. Rowe had been paid and leveled fairly from the time she was hired to date and that she was not subsequently denied any promotions. So as always, painting, painting a verdict in two different ways here. One last thing to note, Google has told the court that it plans to seek judgment as a matter of law, which is a, another unsurprising thing. That motion hasn't been filed yet, but I imagine Google will be fighting the damages award in particular and probably the other aspects of the verdict that didn't go its way. So this fight is not over yet. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Amber, you already teased this one up top, so let's get into it. Okay, let's start with a key question for the following story. Do you know who Ted Nugent is? Ooh. Ooh. Yes. Yes, <laughs> Alex, you. I have my, answer. Oops. Oh, I have sorry. my hand raised uh, for the listeners. Yes, I know Ted Nugent. Yes, he uh, was a musician, and now he uh, does conservative political rants almost exclusively from a tree stand as I understand it. (laughs) You know what? That is an excellent definition, and that is largely tracks what I would have put in the notes in case both of you said, no, I do not remember who that is. (laughs) Yes. Um, I bring this up 
just, and like you said, Alex, just to recap for the listeners, he's a guitarist and a singer. He's been rocking out since the 60s, but he really became a household name in the 1970s. The song that I think most people know is Cat Scratch Fever, but he was also part of a quote-unquote supergroup, the Damn Yankees, in the 1980s. So Ted Nugent has had a long musical career. And as you said, Alex, um, he's maybe more infamous than famous at this point, known for being really outspoken about his conservative political beliefs, has said a lot of pretty mean things about President Obama. He's very pro-gun rights and is largely known for that at this point. Early on the birther movement, too, if I uh, recall correctly. Yes, that's right. Uh, but why does that matter? Is he, did somebody sue him? Uh, is he suing? Uh, I don't know. You would think. It's a little more nuanced than that, but I started okay. this way for a reason. So this week, the Fourth Circuit was set to decide whether a news website publishing a Ted Nugent photograph um, that was allegedly meant to convey a political message falls under fair use. That's all well and good as a legal issue, but the real fun here comes from two judges who confessed they had no clue who Ted Nugent is. <laughs> Love it. So to further dispose with the particulars of the case, which actually is pretty interesting, and if anybody finds this intriguing, that's when they can go to our website and, and sort of get a more fulsome description here. But the judges don't really have to know who he is. The key issue in the case is whether a conservative news site infringed a rock photographer's copyright when it published a picture of Nugent with an article titled, 15 Signs Your Daddy Was a Conservative. So... <laughs> I, All right. I, they, they were sued by the photographer of the picture they used, and I suspect they might be hearing from Jeff Foxworthy as well. <laughs> Excellent point. I mean, I mean, come on. This is, this is, that, that, that is his thing. Come on. Um, but what I really want to focus on is not that legal dispute, although, again, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it was an interesting case. Yeah. It implicates the Warhol Supreme Court ruling from, uh, was that a year ago, two years ago? Um, could have been anyway, a thousand so years ago. It, it, uh, news moves so fast around here. But yes, people should read more about that if they want the actual legal part. But what I want to talk about is the fun stuff. And it's the action about these perplexed judges during arguments. I'm so excited to get into this. I, I just also want to say, like, it's very common in court proceedings for judges to say they, you know, maybe don't understand an aspect of pop culture. But yeah. I was surprised that they don't know Ted Nugent. Yeah, well, like you would expect that if they're talking about like Billie Eilish or, you know, yeah. Zayn You're Malik or somebody. Like no I don't know. No, this fight isn't over like an obscure meme or something put together by a, a Gen Zer. Yeah, you're going to become more surprised in this story. So Yeah, tell us. At one point, Circuit Judge Robert Bruce King, who I would like to point out is 83, and that is important in a second. He asked counsel for the news site, is he a country music singer? Is that what he is? And then the counsel says, country or rock? And the judge says, a rock singer? I'm too old to know, I guess. <laughs> too old. <laughs> it is the wrong direction. This is incorrect. You are, you are the right demo to know who Ted Nugent is, whose career started in the 1960s. Seriously. So I, it is, <laughs> it's perplexing. I was so thrown by it because of what you guys said. Like, yes, if you picked somebody like, Olivia Rodrigo or something. Like, maybe I'd understand that. But Ted Nugent, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, as a factual matter, I mean, you said he was 83, this judge who said he doesn't know who he is. Ted Nugent is, seven, is turning 75. I looked that up. So, I mean, I guess, technically, he is older than Ted Nugent, and maybe he missed it. I don't know. But I don't know how you can, like, not even through, like, 
cultural osmosis. He's like a very famous guy. Yeah, very much so. Okay, so then if that wasn't enough, Another circuit judge, James Andrew Wynn, made a similar admission later in the argument, saying, quite frankly, let me tell you, I did not have a clue. I don't know who Ted Nugent is, but that doesn't matter to me. (laughs) That judge went on to say something that I thought was even funnier. He added that he doesn't know who Taylor Swift is either. And he threw out this quip. It's about an age, nothing else. No, 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 no. We are not (laughs) lumping in Ted Nugent with Taylor Swift and then saying that you don't know who both of them are because of your singular age. Speaking of logic games, I mean, I mean, that (laughs) we we, we were talking about that earlier. That doesn't make any sense because, well, and also the guy, I mean, I guess we can, we, we would need the full transcript, but like, did he say, I don't know who Taylor Swift is on his own? Because clearly he knows who, like, did, did somebody ask him? (laughs) How did she come up? Like, you can't just say, well, I mean, he's he's heard the name, clearly. I would like to reflect on the broader point here, too, of do you forget all historical pop culture knowledge and knowledge you had about music when you hit a certain age? Is that their argument? Like, did they know at some point and now it just, it doesn't matter. They've, they, I mean, they're above it. They've reached an age where it just all goes away. I mean, I don't want to overstate the cultural footprint of Ted Nugent either, but like... <laughs> As as we said at the top of the segment here, like, it's not just that he's a musician. He's like a very, like, presumably these judges watch the news. Like, I mean, he's on the news. I mean, he's not really on the news that much anymore, but like definitely like during the Obama administration, like he was he was in the news all the time for saying some inflammatory thing or another. And you would think that might just soak in to your judge brain. But I don't know. Maybe not. Every Everyone has gaps in pop culture. I'm pretty comfortable with embracing like one judge in an in a argument saying like, I don't, I don't really know who the celebrity is. I get that. But we have moved to a territory here where it's two of them. Yeah. That's very odd to me. Do you guys ever watch that Tig Notaro segment she does? Uh, it's, a, I can't remember if it's a show or just a segment she has on a, on a larger program, but it's basically... The conceit is that famous people come on and they don't say who they are or what they're from. And oh, she has yeah. to guess who they are because she's notoriously like Ignorant not in that. the yeah. zeitgeist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This has that vibe to me where it's like, okay, this one seems easy. Like, uh, it's not obscure and you're definitely not too old. It would be cool if they, if someone asked them, maybe the judge doesn't know him by Ted Nugent and he only knows him like by his various nicknames. Like he's like, oh, you mean the Motor City Madman? <laughs> yes, of course. Oh, I didn't know that was the same guy. Yeah, oh my god, yeah. that would oh, be the Nuge. The Nuge. The, the Nuge. That's what you mean. I didn't know that was Ted Nugent. I can't wait to see as we all age what bit of pop culture we just black out in our brains. Like, what are we letting go of? Uh, well, it's not going to be Savage Garden. I can tell you that. I still know. <laughs> still know all the words to pull. multiple hits from 1997. I was trying to think about musicians that also have a real presence in terms of taking stands on on politics and social issues. And my favorite band from the time I was a kid has been Pearl Jam. So it would yeah. be like me being like, "Who Eddie Vedder, never heard of him. What are you talking about? Yeah, I don't know what that's about. Uh, I don't know. I'll probably forget like, I don't know, James Blunt or something. <laughs> I don't know. Who was like really famous there for a while. But again, that's not really comparable. He's not as famous as Ted Nugent. That's correct. But Ted Nugent know. is more famous. Well, this yeah. lowers Ted Nugent's <laughs> Q score. I'll tell you that. Because judges don't know him. No, they don't. I, and honestly, as we said, like, 
them knowing him is not central to this at all. And I just, I'm very amused by the idea that in a case that's not about his popularity or his identity, it's just about, it's about the guy. He's not even a party to the lawsuit. It's about the guy who took the picture of him and, and, right. and, where, and where those rights belong. It is funny that there's this long digression or lengthy digression that, I mean, he's catching strays. He's worked hard to cultivate <laughs> an image, I guess. And he's got two like people like in his age demo who are just like, I don't know who this guy is. Like, can we talk about the issues, please? I don't well, know. Well, before I forget any celebrities, we better end this show. Stop it here so that this fog of forgetfulness doesn't spread to us as hosts. <laughs> yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and memor I'm gonna, I'm gonna go write down the name of every famous person that I know and I'm gonna put it <laughs> in my desk. That's I'm right. gonna read but it every day before I go to sleep. It's just safety's sake, Alex. Yeah. Sleep with it under check. your pillow. Yeah, that was yeah. the old <laughs> the old elementary school trick. It's yeah. great. Osmosis for celebrities. That sounds like the kind of advice we're giving here on the Pro Se Podcast. And I would like to thank you both for giving it with me. All right. Thank you, Amber. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our contributing reporters this week, Allison Grandy, Emily Sawicki, Rachel Scharf, and Haley Fowler. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. It definitely helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.